everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Tessa, and today on our panel, we have Ari Clark. Hello. Bean Hong. I'm Bean. And our special guest for this episode is Amel Hussein. Amel, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Tessa. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Amel Hussein. I'm a principal software engineer at a company that I haven't announced yet. It's top secret. I just started my new job and I'm like keeping everyone in suspense. So y'all will have to check back on my Twitter profile in a few weeks. Before uh, joining this company, I was an, an engineering manager at NPM. And before that, I worked at Boku doing all this cool open web platform stuff, standards work, really, and as well as like working on really complex and unique applications that push the web pretty hard, like in terms of using all of the fancy web APIs at once from like service workers to computer vision to like, you know, all kinds of just, you know, fun challenges with Canvas. So I've got a lot of, I I would say, extensive experience, I think, pushing the web forward in terms of, you know, what you can do in a browser. So I was kind of really grateful for that experience. And I'm excited to be talking to y'all today about debugging. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a background. I thought I had zero experience, but today I learned I have like negative 500. <laughs> you and me both, girl. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to be clear, web and mobile development is quite literally the most humbling thing you can do for a living. There's no way that any singular person knows any, like knows everything and or knows the best way to do a thing. And so, you know, similar to kind of PhD candidates, you know, I think folks in web and mobile are often very much T-shaped, right, in terms of their skills. So I think there's like a broad array of things that they are generally familiar with, but usually people have like a deep layer of expertise and they kind of stick to that lane. And so no FOMO, the stuff is hard. That's why they pay us the big bucks. And it's really important that we work on lowering the bar for people entering in our community, entering our community, right? Like we need to kind of like I'm like done with the gatekeeping, basically. Like we have a lot of things to work on for the web Mm. platform and, you know, we're not going to do it with the number of people that we have right now. So um, so our whole industry kind of needs to like move forward and like also be a lot more inclusive, right? Absolutely. So, sorry to like go on that, that rant. No, I, I loved like, it. Thank just you. Had to, I just had to coach <laughs> Tessa and say like, you can do it, girl. You got we do this. that to her all the time. <laughs> okay, good. Good. I do that to her too sometimes. And you know, so. But why? Um, Actually, we do it for, for each other all the time. Oh, all the time. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear It's that. not just Tessa. I need it too. Ben needs it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, why do it when Bean will do all the work for everybody on the planet? Oh. Oh, right. oh. We love you, Bean. <laughs> debugging one of those areas where you go like the vertical part of the T or like what interests you about debugging and why are you passionate about speaking on that today? So I guess full disclosure to our listeners, Tessa gave me like free reign. She's like, just come on the show, talk about whatever you want. And I was like, okay, cool. I think this is the topic I want to talk about. And the topic being debugging as well as like application profiling and like how they intersect. And so the reason why I wanted to talk about debugging is I think, you know, it's very much for me in the spirit of trying to like eliminate gatekeeping, right? So a lot, like I feel like debugging expertise, you know, often falls within a few people within a given team or given org. And I'll give you some more context here, which is that like, There's usually like when stuff goes wrong, usually there's like one or two people that are called in that like get to have like their hero moment. You know, I see that on every single team, every single company I've been at, you know, so 
debugging knowledge is, you know, uh, there's a little bit of gatekeeping along with hero culture, right? So ultimately, like, unless we democratize this knowledge, right? Unless we take the time to say, hey, everybody as a team, as a company, like, let's all level up on our debugging skills. Let's all have the confidence to feel like we know how to tackle unexpected errors or things going haywire, right? Not only does that kind of like raise the level for everybody on the team, but it, it just... I, it promotes more sustainable paths for uh, just y- your entire org, right? You're, you're kind of limiting hero culture and you're kind of spreading the wealth, right? And so with that said, I'm super passionate about this topic because I also think like this is a way to further yourself in your career. And for me, it's a necessary skill for going from like mid to senior, senior to principal, right? Like for me, like the, the higher you are in the technical leadership stack, like the more you should be like comfortable debugging and leading those conversations as well within your, within your team. And, and I guess I will say lastly, I would say that, you know, for folks that are not writing software, right? So like engineering managers are sometimes writing software, directors are rarely writing software vps are never writing software right the higher oh, well, you are well, i'm just saying startups that's yeah. still a thing <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh, i'm sorry i'm thinking of like i'm thinking of yeah. like large medium enterprise right and and to be clear i was an engineering manager i just made that shift myself from be going back to uh being an ic and at a principal level and i can tell you that like you're still writing software as an engineering manager or a director but you're doing it through people right and I can tell you that the debugging skills that directors and VPs often have are beyond the scope of just how to, beyond the technical strategies of debugging code. They, they know how to debug process and people problems and all the other things, right? And so really like for me, when you're a technical leader, like you're actually like debugging your entire org all the time, right? Like you're just like shifting and moving and like, you know, puppeteering things. And so... You know, I just wanted to say that, like, I think debugging is like very meta, right? Like you can be as literal as there's this error in my app, but, you know, it can kind of go all the way up to like, there is a broken process problem or, you know, we dropped the ball here organizationally, like, how are we going to fix it? Right. So I think it's a very wide topic in that regard. But in the interest of this podcast, obviously, we'll focus on closer to the metal problems, you know. (laughs) Yeah, like I remember when I was learning to code and whenever I ran into a bug, the teacher would just be like, oh, well, it's online, whatever. And so I didn't really figure out how to read a stack trace until I had been debugging on my own at work for a while. And so even when I was teaching beginner JavaScript classes, whenever I ran into a bug, a part of me would like panic and I'm like, oh no, how will I read this? And so now I'm not great at it, but when I run into an error, it's exciting. And I try to make a point of identifying everything in the stack trace that I'm looking at. But I feel like even that level of debugging, I just happens to figure out. So I'm curious what your approach is to debugging or like how you got better at it. Or if you were trying to teach somebody who's new to debugging, like where would they start? I'll start by sharing my journey, which is probably similar to to yours and many others. You know, I would say the more senior I became, you know, the more comfortable I was with debugging. And for me, the first step often started with don't panic, right? And so I remember very early in my career, oh my God, stuff's wrong. Like, like my brain was so fogged and like frazzled by the thing that broke that I couldn't even read the code, right? Like you get into like this really weird panic state where you're like, ah, like, oh my God, 
you know, and then you like immediately run to your go-to person or persons and, you know, you get their eyes and they kind of coach you through it. Right. Lo and behold, like nine times out of 10, like the answer to your problem is right in front of you. Right. Because it's often, you know, an error message that will lead you to a thing that will lead you to a thing that will lead you to the solution. And so I would say like really the first step for me was just like not panicking. And similar to Tessa's experience, it's a smile, right? Because for me, when I find problems in my app, I'm extremely excited about this because I found it in development versus in production, right? So there's, I found it before I pushed the code review, right? I found it before it merged, before you know, people started to touch it and it became an exponential problem all of a sudden, right? So uh, we should welcome errors. Like we should befriend them. They should be our friends, <laughs> like... And we should try to squash as many of them as possible, like before we ship to production. That said, things do happen in production. Edge cases happen, not edge cases, like there are scenarios which, you know, you maybe didn't test or cover for. And there are problems that happen in production. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I would say for me, the first thing is like, calm down, take a deep breath, be grateful and follow the clues, right? So it's, it's very much like a mystery hunt, like depending on what you're debugging, but often like if you're debugging an error, it's a game. It's like a, a treasure hunt or what are those games called? Like where you like uh, find a clue and then you go to the place and then it, there's another clue, you know, like. I think that is treasure hunt. In my head, I was like. The treasure hunt? It's like a treasure hunt. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's like a treasure hunt. And so just, I think the only kind of things around the treasure hunt experience, which I think, again, trip up a lot of people is, you know, when is it a clue and when is it a red herring, right? So like sometimes you run into issues that are actually like third party, like side effects of something. And it's kind of this decision of like, okay, should I go down that track or do I, or do I go this other track? Right. And so I think, I think that's really where experience comes into play. You know, I think having the context of like what caused the error what is the error saying, you know, and, you know, leveraging your experience to like make decisions that are going to get you closer to the solution. Like, right. So you can take the long path or you can take the short path. And I often find that like the more senior you are, the shorter the path, right. And the more sometimes new you are, you'll, you'll get there. It'll just take a very long road. Right. And we have all been there. And to be completely clear, to be Honest, I still do that, right? Doesn't matter how long I've been writing software. Like sometimes, you know, you spend like three hours debugging something that's like a basic problem and that's okay. Like that is, that is our job. That is what we're paid to do. We're paid to break builds and fix them. And it's a cycle of ups and downs and you have to just like, that's just, that's the rhythm of software development, right? That's true. Like I, what you were saying about reading the error messages, I feel like that was a big thing for me, especially starting out, just remembering to read the error messages. I had so many posts being like, actually look at the error. Yeah. No, no, seriously. Yeah. So Ari and Ben, like, do y'all want to share some stories like of, you know, stories of commiseration to, to our listeners who think that they should never have problems debugging. Like, you know, it should be like this magic thing that just fixes itself. Ben and Tessa both know about this. Running to them crying a few weeks ago. I had a bug that I could not pin down at first because, like, on the surface, everything looked fine. And I actually was going on vacation for two weeks. And so the person who had just started working in my code base was tasked with trying to fix it. <laughs> and he, he's a very senior developer, but he 
is not traditionally a front end developer. It took him all two weeks to not fix it. And it took me two hours once I got back, two additional hours, because two hours before I left and then two hours when I got back to figure out that it was a misuse of the platform. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. I was using an ID inside of V4. And so it kept, and it was a checkbox and it kept triggering only the first checkbox, no matter what checkbox (laughs) you hit. So yeah, that was one where I didn't have an error message. I just knew something was horribly wrong, but on the surface, everything looked fine. But yeah, so sometimes a really familiar, like deep knowledge of the platform is the only answer. Yeah. yeah. I actually, before I hear Ben's like response to this, can, can I just double click into something you said, Ari? So I think you bring up a very good point that I'd like to highlight, which is, you know, you said something about on the surface, it looked fine, you know, and, you know, but there was something obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, you know, the debugging story is two part, right? Because the tool makers and the library authors also need to be good about communicating errors and giving people as much context into why this is broken, right? And I actually think the React community has been historically fairly good about that. But then I know there's a bunch of libraries that you can add to augment your errors as well and make them more like glaring and like less of a thing that you can ignore, right? But I have to say that, you know, your debugging ability is like, pretty linear to how good the the support for it is in the tool or platform that you're using, right? And so if you're using a library that isn't catching exceptions or uses one error message for like 17 types of errors, right? Like it's going to make your job harder. And so I think that's just something to keep in mind. And those are good lessons I think that you can take forward with you as an engineer that's writing application code, right? So think about your future self, think about your colleagues, you know, how are you going to write this feature and add in safety points for clear communication of shit went wrong, right? Or things went sideways. And so like, you know, and good error messages and error handling are like your go-to friends in that regard, right? When you're writing application code. And so that's just end documentation, obviously, and tests. Yeah, I can actually speak to that. I've been recently playing around with uh, D3 and SVGs a bit more. And so I wrote a tweet about how I was trying to have an ellipse show up on my SVG. And so like, I had a rectangle, I had a circle, it was great. And then I added the lifts and then like nothing showed up. No error message, no nothing. So that's like the worst of debugging. It's just like, why is it wrong? <laughs> so it turns out I had written ellipsis instead of ellipse. But with my CSS background, I didn't see the ellipsis part because I've used it so often with text overflow. And so it wasn't until that I realized it, I was like, oh, that's what's wrong. But another example of this, to your point, Amel, about like error messages is I was trying to use D3's processing. So you can do like D3.json and then it'll process the JSON. And that's how it explained to me. So I like in my view application, it did like import like my JSON file and then I passed it to D3.json, the JSON file. And then it was just like improper error JSON, like first character, like less than symbol. And I was like, what's wrong? Like, I don't know what's going on. Turns out after diving into like the network request and everything, the D3.json is actually fetching whatever you're passing it. It's not actually just doing the processing. So it was trying to fetch something that had already been processed, which is what was breaking. But then the, to your point, the error message, not helpful <laughs> whatsoever and required a bunch of predecessing knowledge to even figure out that that was the actual problem. 
Yeah, that, that sounds like a very, I would say, relatable experience, both, both based on what Ari shared and I'm sure what all of us have experienced many times before when using certain tools. And, and for me, like what's really interesting about this is, you know, if you're kind of thinking about like a library and you're thinking about it, the ad- adoption factor, right? Like for me, I can tell you like the way I judge a library, let's say I, I have four JSON parsing libraries to choose from, like hypothetically. How am I going to pick? I'm going to pick based on uh, their test coverage. I'm going to pick based on their error handling and their documentation and how I would say robust, you know, the communication is for how to use it and when things go wrong, you know. And so these are all like things that are, that make a library easier to not only use, but more importantly, maintain, right? So like if I'm maintaining this library within my application, along with a suite of other tools, you know, if something starts to become problematic, like, you know, I'm going to really be thinking about, okay, like this library is clearly not actually production quality. And maybe this is like some side project that's like important to someone, but I, I need a tool that's going to be able to like to better serve the needs that like I have in, in, you know, for maintaining this production app. Right. So, so it's just, just something to consider for library authors. You know, it's a difference between like an amateur and a pro, right? Like, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I never thought about checking those things before. Cause I feel like the quality of the error messages, like you said, is so important to the development experience. And it's, like you don't really have a good way to know that until using the app, but I guess looking at the test coverage and stuff at least gives you some sense of where the developer's values lie. I couldn't agree more. And I can share some insight into my personal process. My process is nowadays when I'm learning a new tool, like a new library, in addition to looking at the doc, which is like the first pass, the second pass for me is actually looking at the test because I, I use the tests to understand the usage patterns. And that's my hack actually to really understand like, what is this thing doing? How are they using it? How are you not supposed to use it? You know, and so it's it's actually a really great way to come up to speed on a library is to like, just like read its tests. So just, you know, PSA, you know, on that for anyone listening. That's brilliant. Yeah. And for me, like, you know, the usage and API design is very important to me, right? So ultimately, like you can solve a really important problem, but if you have a bad design and a bad interface for how to solve that problem, then like no one's going to use it, right? It's kind of like that little bit of a marketing problem in in, in some ways. So you have like when creating tools and libraries or applications, you know, you want to have error driven design in some ways, but also, you know, if, if you're designing a tool for others to consume, it's very important that you design it with principles in mind where you don't let people go off the path too much, right? So like too much flexibility is bad when it comes to tooling. And so mm-hmm. in theory, there should be one way to do one thing. And when you do it another way, they, you know, there should be immediate feedback to the user like that this is wrong and like this is why, right? So just kind of a tangent on API design, but... <laughs> I mean, now that you mentioned it, it never occurs to me. I know I'm having worked with a lot of Vue apps, you know, Vue has, uh, it didn't occur to me until now, but like basically progressive error reporting where mm-hmm. some of the more minor things that like maybe has suggestions for optimizations occur in the console. But yeah. when something is straight up breaking your build, it actually, like for the ones that it knows about, it'll throw it straight up on the screen. So you don't right. have to like stare at a blank screen and then be like, oh, I think something's broken. And then open your console and then figure it out. It throws that error that like, hey, by the way, you didn't wrap your component in a single root element. Like, <laughs> Go do that. Right, right. Yeah, the, <laughs> the compiler can't compile and this is why, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I wish that, 
React was more like that out of the box, but like there's tools that you can use. React Air mm-hmm. is one like where you know you, you can augment, you can create that experience that I think Vue has out of the box. And I think that's why people love Vue so much, right? Vue, it is a lot less just not like just I guess decision making, and it's a lot less. It's less decision making, and it, it, there's less fatigue around you know best practices because there's just a lot built into the the stuff that you get out of the box, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think that's why Vue was like a very welcome thing in the community. Yeah, I'm, I'm just like, what is happening? Because back when I used React, was and I always got the red screen of death, being like, you can't write components, and like in Vue, I've only ever gotten silent silent errors, at least on the visual side of the browser. So like, where, where are these errors coming from? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so well, I, uh, if you miss a comma yeah. between functions, it will yell at you. <laughs> <laughs> so just try that and you'll see what we mean. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. I guess to, to also be clear, I think tools like Create React App have more of that built into the experience than like, I'm just saying vanilla React, right? Like, so I think think like React Errors, I could be wrong about this. We can Google it and get the, the name, but like that, there's a library that like I think is almost de facto with a lot of React apps now. But I'm just saying that the fact that it is default in the platform is like in, in the library itself is a little bit telling, right? I, I, would, I would opt for that being there, especially because it's not something that's shipping in production. It's like just a, just, mm. you know, like development flag yeah. feature. My most recent proudest bug was like Ben's like an SVG thing where I had these two kebab menu looking things that are side by side. But in my component, they had a big space in between and everywhere else they didn't. So I looked at the SVG and it turned out the view box was wrong. And like, I never know anything with view box. And also there were two SVGs of kebabs put side by side. So some places <laughs> it would turn a white space and other places it wouldn't. I would have never found that out if Firefox didn't add like a white space thing. And then, oh, it turned out actually that the kebabs had four dots and they truncated off the last two dots using the view box. So it would be three dots each. Anyway, I rewrote the whole thing and I know nothing about SVG, but overall the experience felt okay because I could see what I was doing. But I feel like so typically with Vue, like I'll get a bug and I'll say, oh, it's in some like compiled file or it will give me a component, but it's not the, the actual part where the error is occurring. And so like, I'll click on the link and then I'll open the source file and I'm like, oh my God. So maybe I'll copy and paste code and then I'll search for that in the code base (laughs) or like, heaven forbid, it triggers the debugger or I put in a debugger and that takes me into the source source file. So I feel like when you get into that kind of situation, which at least for me has been a common experience across Vue, Angular, Angular JS, React, what do you do there? So I would say the first thing is that I just want to point out that you highlighted a very, very good example because you showed that like, you, you said that like, because Firefox provided like some tooling or some analysis for what was wrong inside of its dev tools, that's how you were able to debug the problem, right? So I want to kind of just point out that, you know, HTML and CSS are absolutely very problematic for trying to debug problems, right? Like to put it politely and mildly. And this is no shame on uh, the CSS and HTML. This is just like a limitation of the platform itself, right? So this is just markup. HTML doesn't really tell you when things are wrong. It'll just like, it'll, there's a lot of silent failures. Mm-hmm. And same thing for CSS. Well, CSS, like at least sometimes, you know, you'll have some, like, I think some, some errors get to surface a little bit more. 
but but ultimately like it's nothing like a programming language right and so it's just something to keep in mind you will will shoot yourself in the foot with markup and css like it's just a matter of like how and when right <laughs> and so there are tools similar to kind of like uh, linters, right, that can help you mitigate that, right? So like if you forget to close a tag where, where it needs to be closed, or if you have some invalid CSS property or like a typo like Ben had, right? Like, you know, there are tools like that you can add to your stack that can help mitigate that. And I would highly recommend it, right? So the same way you're kind of linting and checking for errors in your, like, your programmatic code, you should be doing that for your markup and your styles as well, you know? And so with that said, I would say that, you know, first of all, I'm not sure I, I, I know more than like five people personally that like know how view boxes really work. So, so you're in good company there, uh, Tessa. But <laughs> <laughs> I still like, I've, ha- I've like taken a class with Sarah Drosner and I still like, I'm like, ah, oh, I don't understand, you know? I'm like, it's so confusing. I, SVGs are like mind boggling for me, but I, 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 it's one of my personal goals to like master it and master them and like show everybody I can, I can, I can be boss, but I'm constantly whooped by <laughs> SVGs. So, but yeah, I, I would say to Tessa, like, it's a matter of, you know, the platform potentially having improvements that they can make when, you know, to like, like to give developers feedback. And I think like more specifically, depending on, where the error is like you just you just need to kind of know your tooling landscape like you have to know what's available to you to to help debug right so node errors for example you know there's there's a lot of really cool profiling tools and there's things that can help you identify like the source of like memory leaks and problems but you just have to really take a minute to like familiarize yourself with what are the tools at my disposal to like help debug this problem and I can give you another specific example, like production problems for, you know, like, you know, are you ready to debug problems that are happening in a live production app, right? So, you know, do you have source maps? Uh, or do you have a way of like reversing your source maps? Do you have a way of, you know, tracking and capturing errors that happen in production? Like, do you have a process for looking at errors that happen in production and triaging them, right? Like what's your expected error versus unexpected error, right? There's like all kinds of, things that kind of go into planning for problems that are part of the productionization process. So, and familiarizing yourself with the tools and the landscape and being ready for that is part of getting ready to launch, right? And also just being an engineer. (laughs) Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about the profiling part? Because lately my team has been running it. We're trying to address those issues where all our pages are just, they load slow, but we don't know why. We don't know where to start looking. So. Essentially, when you're profiling a problem, like you, typically it's some type of performance bottleneck or you're trying to understand ways to optimize, right? So you, maybe you're being proactive or maybe you're being reactive. But in either case, you first need to kind of break the stack, right? Because remember, we have clients, we have servers, we have databases, we have cache layers, we have CDNs, we have like, there's a lot of opportunities for improvement. And so you need to kind of first like pick where you're going to start, right? And you can use metrics to help drive that decision, right? Like you can, if you want to test uh, how your server's doing in production, right? You can actually just like make a request to an API, pull up the network tab and see, you know, like what's the latency on that? Like how long did it take to respond? Like, you know, 
blah, blah, blah. Like you can actually like get the metrics for that API and like, and consequently diagnose like how well your server is doing. But also like, it's important when you're debugging server problems that like, you know, production and load testing is uh, somewhere in your workflow because, you know, you hitting an API is very different than like, 100 concurrent users hitting an, an API, right? So you need to kind of understand like what are the metrics for your expected thresholds and like how many concurrent users are you trying to support, right? And then make sure that your app can handle that plus like another 20 to 30%, 30%, right? And and any and going above that, maybe, you know, there's a an alarm or a, some type of monitoring thing that goes off to say like, hey, we have a way higher than expected load. Right? So anyways, I'm, I'm, di- I'm digressing now, but to, so back to the profiling question. So let's say you find out your API is the bottleneck and like these responses are taking a long time. Okay, so then like, let's look at the API stack and let's further break it down. So there's a server and there's a database. So the question now is like, is there crazy code in my server that is causing this bottleneck, right? Am I doing a bunch of crazy things with my ORM and we're like, have, do I have too many transactions open at the same time? Am I doing too many flushes or not enough flushes? Like there's so many things that could potentially be going wrong in your data layer, like in your server layer, business logic layer. And, you know, and if you find that like, Hey, it's not necessarily that there's things going wrong or things that are taking long in the server. It's that like my server is making SQL, like I'm making a database query and this query is just taking five seconds to come back. And then, then it becomes a problem of like, okay, let's go to the database and let's figure out how to, how to restructure this data and clean this up because developers are notorious for thinking that they know how to design a database when they actually don't. Right. So like myself included, like I'm not a data expert and I'm the first to say like, I'm not a data expert. (laughs) I can, I can do simple things, but like when it comes to like applications of scale, like I haven't taken, I haven't invested in my skills enough to get to a place where I'm comfortable designing like a production quality database on my own. Right. Like, and so oftentimes you, you should work backwards, but there's also a bunch of like going back to the client. And I know that this is like a, you know, front end JavaScript podcast. So going back to the client, you know, there's, let's say you find that your pages, your, your API calls are fine, but like it, your page just takes like, you know, a few seconds to parse, you know, that's where you want to open your debugger and start profiling and figuring out like, okay, how big are the files that we're parsing? There's all these really cool tools in Chrome that allow you to see how much code is executed for a given page. Right. So let's say you have a homepage and you, you, you send like, I don't know, 400 megabytes of code. Let's just hypothetically say it, you know, you can actually see like, oh, in this homepage, I'm using this JavaScript file, but like only 30% of it's actually in active use. Let me begin coming up with a, a story and a plan for how you code split. Right. And so, you know, that's one example of how to profile like front end problems is, you know, like bundle size and looking at like code usage and trying to split things up. Another interesting thing to do also is, you know, you can kind of try to see if there's a way for you to kind of leverage, like if you have a bunch of code that you're sending up that's not in use or, or that is in use, but it's not urgent or immediate or needed, you know, you can start coming up with a strategy of how to move things off of the main thread, right? So how, how can you leverage service workers or web workers 
to like get things off of the main thread and not interrupt the rendering process for your users, right? And so I, anyways, I can go on and on. I'm going to stop for questions and comments now. Um. <laughs> yeah, one question that I have is when I was learning web dev, I feel like a really common refrain was don't worry about performance on the front end. Like it's not really something people care about. But I remember the the example there was often like setting the length of the for loop to a variable or something like that. And, you know, I'm sure that wasn't taking into account internet speeds and devices across the planet. But I recently was talking to somebody about it and I learned that that was not a unique experience to to hear that. So for all the beginners out there in terms of performance for the front end, what would be like your one tip or, or starting thing that they can try out? Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you brought this up because this just speaks to a historical bias, right, around JavaScript and in programming communities and in software communities, I guess, at large. And, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, JavaScript was like something that graphic designers played with. And like a lot of people never actually took it seriously. A lot of people still don't take it seriously. You know, I run into people all the time that like rant and about JavaScript and they just have like no respect. And, you know, I'm, I, I rant about JavaScript sometimes too, but it's not out of a lack of respect. It's out of wanting to, it to be better. You know what I mean? And so there's historical bias there, especially for, you know, communities that have like server-side rendering as their only and main kind of architecture pattern, right? So they're just like, don't worry, the server's going to handle everything. And so I think to kind of give you some insight into where that feedback is coming from around like, don't worry about optimizing your loops. Part of that feedback is valid, right? In the sense that depending on what's happening in your client, like you don't have to worry about the micro optimizations, right? Like there's a lot of micro optimizations you can make in your code to like have it be more performant. Like, and, the, it, and that's the stuff that makes your code like less easy to read. I think Facebook came up with a, we'll have to put this in the show notes. Facebook has a tool that you can run on your JavaScript to like make it more performant so that the JavaScript engine at compiled at runtime doesn't have to do as much work, right? So it's about how do we structure and predefine variables and whatever else, like how do we change this code so that the JavaScript engine has to do less guesswork and therefore can work more optimally, right? So it's like, it's like super micro optimizations. And for me, I would say like that type of optimization is often not needed for most applications, right? And it comes with things like variable names and loops and like that is like such a micro optimization that the true gains are like not like the time spent for most apps. It's not like like the gains and the time spent don't really like they don't add up, right? That kind of optimization adds up when you have, I was working on a software that was going to be run on a single board computer, for example, right? And like, I had to like, we had to like micro optimize the out of everything because it's running on like, it's a tiny, tiny CPU and we don't have the bells and whistles of, you know, like a laptop, right? And so that's when I think you kind of, you, you work on those optimizations, but but for, for most web applications, like the best optimization you can make is at the data layer, you know, the server layer, leveraging caching, splitting up your code and, you know, using as minimal JavaScript as possible, you know, and leveraging, you know, having different outputs for your files so that, you know, your, let's say you release a new uh, version every day or every other day, you know, your users are only having to download the code that's changed and not like 
the, you know, react or view or whatever, like all that stuff should just already be cached and, and, uh, you know, in, in their clients. And so those are the kinds of like, what, like more broad optimizations that often have a higher like payoff. And it starts with profiling, like until, you know, which is a form of debugging. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, without profiling, you, you won't be able to like, you don't know where to start. Like you won't have clear answers on like, where to start and where your problems lie. And, and also you have to prioritize, like it's important to kind of, there's so many things you can work on. It's, you want to try to work on the things that are going to give you the biggest payoff first, right? Usually that'll like, and that type of performance boost is also good for morale, like for your team, it's good for your users, right? So if you're going to spend the time, spend it somewhere, it's going to count. So it sounds like the first place that people should start looking is just getting familiar with the performance tab. Yes, get familiar with the performance tab. There's lots of great resources. I'm going to try to link some. I'm going to I'll try to send you some to link in the show notes, but also be aware of bias when it comes to people saying that you don't have to optimize on the client like that's not that is not true. But you should know when to optimize and what to optimize, but mm-hmm. you should always try to optimize, right? I, I have a question. When you were going through the debugging process, you took very much a top-down version, you know, start in the client. So my personal experience is that every bug comes to me first. Okay. And 90% of the time, not my bug. <laughs> yeah. So how do you kind of break that habit in an organization of, you know, just assuming that because a bug manifests in the UI, that it's a UI problem. I, I think that's such a good point. <laughs> what did you say, Tessa? Oh, did I said that? I hate um, Yeah, yeah. Like front, end, front end, no, seriously. Front end devs are quite often the triagers for their orgs, like, right? So they're the ones that have to figure out what the hell's going on? They do all the legwork. They go way beyond their scope. And then they like hand deliver like the, the answer saying, hey, this is what's wrong. And you go fix it backend team or data team or whatever, right? So I think that's such a good point. And thank you so much for bringing that up. My answer to that is the way you can fix that process problem within an org is through logging, right? It's through analytics, it's through knowing, like, it's through having good handshakes between your errors, right? So ideally, if it's something that happened at, at, in the back end, there should be a log for it, right? And that log should be elevated. And folks should know their code bases to know that when we get this back end error, we also get these front end errors, right? Because we're front end is downstream from back end, right? So it, it starts with logging. Like, it, like lo- logging is, I'm telling y'all, like logging is one of those things that really is so important to an organization and yet it plays second fiddle all the time. No one prioritizes it until it's too late. When you say logging, are or, you- Or, 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 or until, they, until they really need it and then they don't actually implement it with a good strategy. Oh, so when I say logging, I mean yeah. like- let's say there was a Node.js application and there's uh, an error that happens. And so when that error happens, so, so let's say there's an API, something async is happening. It's in a try catch. Oh crap, we're in the catch now. We capture the log, we capture the stack trace, we capture which microservice or which, which server it happened in. We capture what all the, any non-identifying user information along with that. And we log it 
in the cloud or to some service, right? And we have an, a name for that error, right? So ideally our error logs follow some type of like standard JSON format, right? And with that standard JSON format, we have like an event name or error name or something. And so we should know like, oh, what went wrong is user not authenticated, right? Or something like that. I'll just give you an example. And user not authenticated is perhaps maybe an, 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 it's an expected error, right? But then you might have like a global error handler that catches unexpected errors. And so, you know, being able to kind of walk down and leverage logging telemetry. Are, are y'all familiar with what that means when I say telemetry? Like, so timelines. Yeah. So essentially, like, let's say when you're logging stuff, you're like logging a bunch of things. Da, 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 da. And let's say every 30 days you delete your logs unless they're error logs or something. So let's say you have info logs, error logs, warn logs. Your error logs you keep for like 90 days, warn you keep for 60, info you keep for like 20 days, right? And so if you're trying to, if you're like, hey, we got some unexpected errors that happened Sunday night at eight o'clock, you know, you can like go and like look at what else was happening at Sunday night at eight o'clock, right? So you have a telemetry of logs that, you, that allow you to get, uh, more accurately tell a story of what happened. And then you can tie that into front-end logs or some, you know, via something like Sentry, right? So, or Track.js, right? There's, there's lots of tools that help capture front-end errors, expected and unexpected. And so you, know, you can kind of piece the story together, right? But like, it starts with having a process where you monitor your logs and analytics. And you have a baseline understanding of like how many expected errors you're getting or unexpected errors, like you know, what's your threshold, right? So like, if you have a large scale production app and you get like 10 unexpected errors, like maybe that's no big deal. But all of a sudden one day it spikes to like a hundred or more. And then like pager duty goes off, right? Like you just, <laughs> right. So you just have to have a process in place for, for this and giving yourself as much insight into the code when it's running in production is like going to help any debugging process without having eyes into the code and your, your eyes or your logs here, like without having that, like you're done, right? Like you, where, where do you even start? In regards to logging, what are your thoughts on like, I think they're called application monitoring tools. So I think Sentry is the one I tend to hear about a lot. What are your thoughts on things like that? Those are your eyes and ears in production. Those are critical, non-negotiable tools for production scale applications, like for production after applications, I would say, right? And this isn't something that you need for your personal blog, to be clear. Right. This is something okay. you need for your side project, right? Let's, let's I may have looked I may there. have looked into foot sentry on my yeah. blog. <laughs> yeah. Ben, you have like new relic attached, you know, new relic monitoring your your personal blog, you know. <laughs> hey Ben, I have some news for you. No 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 problems yet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so those are critical, critical, critical tools that like are your eyes and ears, right? They let you tell that like they let you stitch that story together and the, the telemetry piece that I was talking about, right? Because usually like when something goes wrong, what, at least for me anyway, like I want to know what happened before, what happened after, right? Like I, I you know, and like without that timeline, like it, it, it's very hard to debug and like start telling the, like and start figuring out like what went wrong. Did that, did that answer your question, Ben? So, so, so I can break yes, down some tools. Like, so, so for example, Sentry, Track.js, I can speak more to Sentry. I, I, I've used Track.js as well, but Sentry has been my kind of go-to more recently. But Sentry is great because it'll capture expected and unexpected errors. So you can actually, you know, in your catch statements or 
you, you can actually have Sentry's error logger log the stack and everything else and give it what, whatever else data you want. And it also has watchers at the global level. So unexpected errors are also caught. And the really cool thing about Sentry is it'll, it'll show you the stack trace of like when this unexpected error was caught, like what was everything else that was happening? <laughs> like, you know, and, and where did this happen in the code? Like what, what, line of, what line in the code did this unexpected error get triggered from, right? So it's just got some really good visuals into that. And the really cool thing about Sentry is you can use it for Node, you can use it for Electron. So for universal applications, it can be like your one-stop place for like capturing error logs. The only thing about Sentry is it's for errors. It's not for info and, you know, mm. this thing app, right? So like you don't want to use it for that. That's not really what it was designed for. Part of that is like perf and, you know, you know part of that is also just like use the right tool for the right thing. Yeah. So, so just, just keep that in mind. And, and logging comes at a cost. It always comes at a cost. So developers don't often realize that. And then they'll add a bunch of logs everywhere and they wonder why their like servers are slow. So you just have to be very selective about the tool that you're going to use to log, right? The tooling that you're using and then how much are you logging, right? Like what level are you logging? Are you logging verbose or debug, warn, right? Like in production, like, you know, what's your threshold for logging a problem, right? Just and keeping in mind that, you know, your, your logs are running alongside your application code and they're sharing memory and resources with like everything else. And they're first class in that way. Just give a shout out to Pino. For anyone who's looking for a good node logger, P-I-N-O, Mateo Colina, he's like a phenomenal engineer who's like the, one of the technical like, directors of Nearform, but also he's on the node steering committee, he's PhD, he's a hyper performance, like he's very, very performance sensitive and like he, you know, created Pino to like be faster and better than everything else, like on the quote unquote market. And so, and it, and it is, it's like the, the fastest and best node logger. So highly recommend it. And there's Pino extensions for all kinds of frameworks. So Express, Koa, Happy, Restify, you know. Awesome. Great rack. On performance too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Pino, I mean, Mateo would be probably happy to talk to y'all about Pino if you want to talk about some server-side stuff. But I know this is like a, I know there's a lot of front-end folks that listen to this show, but I think it would be beneficial to their overall like experience because a lot of times people are writing Node too. So, Going back to what you said about having good handshakes between the errors, do you mind expanding a bit more on what that means? Yeah, sure. So that really comes with domain expertise. So I think maybe I used the wrong word. It's more like having a good understanding of the side effects of a given error, right? So it's more like when this thing goes wrong, these nine other things go on fire. And so that comes with like domain expertise. And that kind of speaks to the point that Ari was making about how like, you know, she's always the one that has to basically own that domain expertise, even though it's beyond her scope of responsibilities. Right. And so, yes, yes, a, yes. That <laughs> so, so yeah, so just, it's a cultural problem and it's a domain expertise problem. And it's something that, like, we need to be better at as a community, quite frankly. We just need to be good at this. And it shouldn't just fall on awesome front-end engineers to fix our problems, right? We're a, one, we're a team. <laughs> one thing I did to try to address some of that domain expertise shortcomings for other developers was I actually documented. So 
our app is largely event driven. And so each That's event, Good architecture. yeah, yeah. <laughs> each event will have very specific consequences down the stack. And so I documented every event that affects anything in the UI and what, it, what is expected to change when that event occurs. Now that of course requires people to read that document, That's but amazing. I tried. <laughs> That's amazing. No, seriously, can I just commend you for doing that? Like what you have done is essentially documented your architecture and uh, interaction flows. And that's huge. Like I hope your team and your manager and everyone is grateful for for that. No, they don't use it. (laughs) But I I I still update it because I'm like, one of these days, someone will actually look at it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? For anything, it's, it's, if anything, it's for you, right? So for me, Documentation, I'm the first customer and that helps me set my expectations, right? Like if this is useful for me, I also hope this is useful for you, you know, but I think I'm always the first customer and good documentation is often just documenting a shared reality, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so we all follow these processes and we do it invisibly because that's our shared understanding and our shared reality. And documentation is like capturing that, right? Like ideally... People shouldn't need documentation to do their jobs, right? It's just the documentation is there so that if everybody gets hit by a bus or someone is new, they have an easy onboarding into understanding the culture and the process, right? And so I think that's like a good framing, like when thinking about documentation. But but I would say that I would advise you to try the next time somebody gives you a production bug that isn't front-end related, I would, I would advise you to just like share the doc with them and say, hey, by the way, I really want to try to get folks other than me to take ownership of this. Like, here's this great doc that I created. You know, I would recommend that you, you know, if you, I don't know if you have weekly or monthly engineering-wide meetings, like to just bring, bring this up. Like, this is a good topic of discussion where you say, hey, would this doc be useful in uh, solving a problem I have, which is that like I get all of the production errors set my way, even though it's not often related to work that I've done or, or I'm, I'm responsible for. Like, I'm just saying it's, it's a good segue for you like and once to, a quarter, have, to have that conversation. I'll send an email with it. <laughs> you know, like it, when like a relevant issue comes up, I'll be like, yeah, so this issue that you're seeing is caused by this event not being fired. As you can see from this document, link to document, <laughs> this relationship is very clear. <laughs> And yet I think maybe two people have ever looked at it and then I think they forget it exists again. But yeah, sometimes an organization has so many culture and process problems that maybe it's just beyond help. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what is it? There's not that quote that's like, you know, God give me the strength to like know what I can change and what I can't change. And yeah. like the difference to know that like, that I don't know, I'm butchered the wisdom of the difference or something. Yeah, You know, so yeah. really like we can have, a whole other show about picking your battles because that is like, it's very important as an engineer, like as you progress throughout your career and your sphere of influence grows, like it's very important for you to be strategic about what you change, when you change, who you, who you include when you workshop and bike shed and how you drive change and adoption. Like, you know, that is the ultimate goal of like, a, you know, technical leadership is to like drive adoption and change throughout an organization. And so, ha, ha, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very fun and tr- 
fun topic and there isn't enough, it's one of those missing manual things, right? So there, there isn't enough knowledge d- documented on ways to do that, right? Like it's very, very much locked away in the heads uh, of leaders, you know, in our community that have been successful at this, you know, but I think, I think there's a lot for us to learn, like, uh, and, and, and just some context, like this is a tool, this is something that, uh, one of my personal goals, right? So like I'm in a principal engineer role now, and I've been a technical lead and senior engineer for a while, right? I was an engineering manager, but this is my first time being a principal engineer. And for me, this is such a career highlight because I've always wanted to be at a high level of influence technically within an organization. And that is now my role. And there's many principal engineers where I work. It's a big company, but still, right? Like I have a sphere of influence that is very immediate. And then they have a larger sphere of influence, right? And so like navigating that and getting change adopted. And that is something I'm looking to master, like, you know, within the next year. Like, so just like FYI, like I'm happy to to come back on the show and talk about that and how that's going. But I, I would encourage you to like also tap other folks who've been like more successful at it than I have to like come on the show and talk to you all about it. That's actually a really great episode for an idea. Ben, did you write that down? <laughs> working on it, working on it. He has to get that blog started up so he can store all his ideas there. <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 yeah. Oh, I, it's funny. I'm, I'm working on a blog too. Like I have a new blog. I'm like redesigning my whole personal website and blog. And so I'm really excited because I never, I've always been so focused on like doing work that I never, I'm like really bad at like self-promoting or like I'm bad at like telling people Mm -hmm. what I'm working on and I'm bad at like sharing my ideas. And so I'm making space for that now. And so you'll be hearing a lot more from me. I'm, I'm like unconstipating my brain a little. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) so. Sorry, sorry for the uh, analogy, but also accurate. So taking a step back, I was wondering if you could just give us like your quick hit list of when, how, and why you would debug or like what you think best practices are for debugging. Yeah, I think think we kind of covered it, right? So I, I would say summary is like, take a deep breath, know your problem. Part of it comes with domain expertise that like what we're talking about with Ari, like, you know, knowing what the cascading effect of a problem is, you know, and like using that knowledge and insight to help drive your treasure hunt. But, but really uh, use the tools, you know, like you, you use, use dev console, use, use uh, performance profiling tools in node, use console logs. Console logs are your friend, you know, it's funny. I, when I, whenever I pair with folks, they get to kind of see a little insight into my process. But like, I don't just use console logs. Sometimes like when I'm debugging a problem, I'll use console.trace. Has anyone used that before? It's, yeah, mind blowing. It's one of those things that's going to, something that's probably going to go on my blog, but I said it here first, everyone. <laughs> console.trace is like one of the most underutilized like things in a developer's toolkit, right? Like, so Essentially, in addition to just logging the thing, it'll also log the trace. It'll log like what happened before I got here. Yeah, Ben is like, his arms are up and Tessa's arms are up. Okay, everybody's okay. Minds are blowing. Yeah, so console.trace. I console trace a lot depending on like what I'm debugging. And so that's like a very helpful tool, right? So that's part knowing what's available to you in the context that you're working, right? So if you're working on the client, like you have console logs, you have console trace, 
if you're trying to fix performance problems, you can also do console, console time end. Like, you know, th- there's, you can actually do benchmarks for timing. There's, there's a lot, just look at the console API. It's amazing. So that there, there's that, but then obviously that there's a, the network tab as well. Right. And like looking at order of operations there, looking at ways to code split and optimize, you know, the amount of JavaScript that you're shipping per page, per route. You know, you can also leverage the performance profiling to figure out, you know, how much JavaScript is being used and what are the biggest offenders. So, you know, Chrome has these really cool uh, tools where you can actually figure out like how much time each function call is taking, like down to the function call, you can click in to like the, I don't know if you, y'all have seen like flame charts, you know, those like flame chart looking things, right? So when you run a performance audit, so you can click into that flame chart all the way and drill down and see, okay, this function took 25 seconds, this function, took, you know, and so you can be as granular as you want, but just know your tools, know your ecosystem, know what you have to work with, you know, have a good idea of like what the root cause is, because that'll help, you know, steer your time efficiently and all that jazz. So speaking of your blog, Amel, where can people find you on the internet? Soon they will be able to find me at nomadtechie.dev. But in the meantime, you can just at nomadtechie all the places. So Twitter is the best place to reach me. My DMs are open. Feel free to say hello, drop by. And with that, it's time for us to move on to this week's pick. Ben, would you like to go first? Sounds good. I have two picks for you this week. So as some of you who have followed along might know, I've been watching a lot of Taiwanese dramas to sort of improve my Mandarin. And so the one I just wrapped up recently is called When I See You Again, and it's on Netflix. So if you're looking for a new Taiwanese drama, definitely recommend checking that one out. And then the second one is the what Ari likes to make fun of me for whenever I talk about D3 is Diablo 3, not D3, the charting library. Yes. <laughs> it is on like PC, Mac, Switch, PS4, Xbox, but just know that the consoles don't play well with one another, unfortunately. So if anybody's looking to play, hit me up. I am just getting started. So excited to play. And that's it for me. What, what system are you playing on, Ben? I actually own them all now because my friends are playing on different ones. Okay, so I'll come I have, back because I own it on three different systems too. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> PC, Switch, PS4. I don't own an Xbox. Otherwise, I would probably own oh, it on Xbox. Yeah. Dev, PC, Switch, and Xbox. There you go. <laughs> I'm also a huge fan in case anyone was wondering and I am currently playing. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I would never have guessed by you owning three copies. That took me by complete surprise. Do you have any picks for us this week, Ari? My first pick is a Netflix original film called An Evening with Beverly Luff Lynn. It is weird. I'm just going to throw that right out there. If you do not like weird things, this is not for you. It's absurd. It's funny. It's heartwarming. It has an incredible cast, including Aubrey Plaza and Jemaine Clement. I highly recommend it, but it is weird. My other pick is a meal kit delivery service, HelloFresh. I'm vegetarian, and so meal kit delivery services can be a little hit or miss. A lot of them don't have great vegetarian options, and they're usually like four options. And if you're trying to do three meals a week, that means you have to like 75% of what they're offering. But HelloFresh has six options a week, and it's our first week, and so far, really good. My husband eats meat, and we've been getting vegetarian ones, and he still loves it. So I highly recommend trying it out. Nice. Amel, do you have any picks for us? 
so my my picks are also one of them is Netflix related. So it's the like Indian matchmaking show that came out. I would highly recommend that folks watch that. I grew up abroad and I have a lot of friends that are that identify as Desi, which is like this kind of group that, you know, of people from like Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, you know, like a bunch of folks in South Asia identify as Desi. And well, you know, it's it's very accurate, I would say. Like it's a great show. The other thing I want to pick is the web. The web is like so important and it's more important like now, now that we are all forced to connect remotely, you know, it is, it is just a reminder of like how important the web is and like how much we should be preserving to keep the web open, accessible, inclusive, and performant, right? Because most people around the world are not using $2,700 MacBooks. They're using like 10 to 20 to $30 phones, that are Android phones, you know? And so there's an empathy there that really, really needs to be pushed with web developers because we're still designing for desktop. And despite the fact that more people access the web on their phones now, like all around the world. And the fastest growing communities accessing the phones, right? Like the fastest, fastest growing internet, like new internet users are like in emerging markets and they're on $20, $30 phones. So, you know, just something to keep in mind and keep in mind that also data is money, right? Like for us, we have unlimited plans, but like, you know, someone from India, Brazil, Kenya, you know, they are like, they're watching every bite that leaves their phone, you know? And they know very well, like, oh, that app going to cost you. You know what I mean? Don't do that. Don't do that on data. Make sure you're on Wi-Fi. Like, you know, folks from other countries know very well, like, which apps are like the biggest offenders. They know which websites are the biggest offenders. And so just kind of keep that in mind, um, folks. Like, PSA, the web is important. Let's be inclusive. Nice. Uh, And finally, my picks for this week. So like Ben, I've been getting back into dramas, but I'm going to be recommending a K-drama. It's a Netflix original one called Harange Pushta, which they've titled in English, Crash Landing on You. And I read a review on BuzzFeed being like, it's pretty good if you just want like a typical Korean drama. And I would say that's that's about right, except it has like similar pacing problems to like a lot of Netflix shows where the episodes can feel pretty, like they don't necessarily have a, a traditional arc feeling, but it is a very funny show. And it stars Hyunbin and Son Yejin, which who are both pretty big actors. And there's even like a cameo from another big actor, Kim Soo-hyun. And it's pretty fun. And my other rec is Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, Spirit of Justice. So a few weeks ago, I recommended Dual Destinies. And this is the one that comes after that. And there's like two parallel storylines that intertwine and also go into the deeper backstory of Apollo Justice. And that's available on iOS, Android, and Nintendo 3DS. And it was pretty epic by Phoenix Wright standards, I think. Yeah, and that's all for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view. Bye.